don't usually do this, but in some traditions, uh, after the reading of God's word, the person reading will say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation will respond, thanks be to God. Let's just do that today as a way of expressing our, our thanksgiving for the precious word of God. I'm going to be reading from uh, verse 26 of Acts 8. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray that you would... Bless the teaching of your word now, that your Holy Spirit would come and that we would receive it with joy. Um, I pray that the, the things that may be preventing uh, us from hearing it rightly, uh, the, the work of the enemy that would seek to pluck up the seed of the word from our hearts, that those things would be dealt with by your sovereign power and hand that we may have the seed of the word planted uh, in good soil this morning so that it bears much fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before jumping into the particulars uh, of this passage, I I want to zoom out. Uh, there's a lot of, of value in, in seeing the, the bigger picture. Reading the Bible is kind of like uh, hiking a mountain. Uh, it's, it's one thing to see a boulder on the trail. Uh, it's another to see that, that that boulder in relation to the rest of the mountain. 
But it's quite an amazing thing to actually summit the mountain and see the entire landscape. So let's hike up uh, two more levels, so to speak, and, and look down on this passage. The next level up, how does this story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch function within the book of Acts? How does it function in Acts? It's often used to promote personal evangelism and support believers' baptism. But the major thrust can be lost in some of these details. The basic point is to display the onward march of the gospel. The onward march of the gospel. Jesus has a plan, if you remember, according to chapter 1, verse 8... And the Spirit was going to come, and they would be His ministers and witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and all Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Well, chapters 2 through 7 focus on the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 is showing the gospel spreading in all Judea and Samaria. Okay, the first half of chapter 8 is, is the gospel spreading uh, to, the, to the north of Jerusalem in Samaria. And the second half of chapter 8, which we're in today, is the gospel spreading to the south of Jerusalem, all the way to this guy uh, who's on a chariot heading back home to, to Africa. In other words, Jesus' plan is right on track. Nothing is hindering the spread of his gospel. It continues to go out just like he says. Not even the persecution is going to stop it. And in fact, this is quite a humorous part of the story here because right before this, this uh, account, right before chapter 8, is a picture of Paul persecuting the church. If you look in chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church and carrying off men and women and consigning them to prison. And then if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, you have another picture of Paul continuing to breathe threats and murders against the Christians. Well, smack in the middle of these two pictures of Paul trying to persecute the church and trying to keep the gospel from being spread is Luke kind of sitting back saying, and meanwhile... In Judea and Samaria, the gospel was still spreading. In other words, you're not going to stop the risen Jesus. He is greater and more powerful. Many of you are well aware that uh, one of our missionary families was sent home from Turkey. The Turkish government doesn't want them spreading the gospel in certain villages where the Muslim population is quite high. Having them sent home was disappointing. At the same time, we have to remember Jesus' hands aren't tied in getting the gospel to Turkish people. The kids and I were in a wreck last weekend. Uh, Totaled the van. Thankfully, everyone was okay. Insurance man calls me Monday morning and says, Hey, I live in Fort Worth. I have three kids. Uh, I feel really terrible for what happened to y'all. I'd like to take you down to the Honda dealer and we'll get you a new van set up today. And I was like, okay. So we, uh, that's an answer to prayer. We go down. He gets everything set up. I'm appointed a salesman. Guess where the guy's from? Istanbul, Turkey. And I get to spend the next five hours with this guy getting all the paperwork done. We eat lunch together. And along the way, I get two different opportunities to share Christ with this man from Turkey. So this wreck south of Waco ends with me and a man from Turkey sitting down and he's open to hearing 
the good news. Jesus' plan to spread the gospel among all peoples isn't constrained by persecution. It doesn't matter if he's an Ethiopian on a chariot to Africa or a Turkish man selling a car. Jesus will save his people. The onward march of the gospel will prevail. The question is, are we being faithful with the opportunities that he gives to us? So let's move to now an even higher level. How does this story function in the Bible? Not just within Acts itself, but within the Bible's overarching storyline. Well, to this point, it's very clear that God is fulfilling his promises to save Israel. Some of those promises included the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we already saw at Pentecost. Uh, Some of those Old Testament promises included what God would do to restore Israel. Uh, The book of Kings tells the story of of Israel's sin ripping the nation of Israel apart to where eventually you have the, the southern kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem and the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria. Ezekiel 37, though, then promises a day when God would gather people from both of these kingdoms and unite them under the rule of a new and greater son of David. Well, the book of Acts answers that promise from Ezekiel 37 again and again. Jesus is the superior son of David. He's not like David, whose body is still in the grave. He rose victorious over the grave, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And as a result, Jews in Jerusalem which is the southern kingdom, think Acts 2 through 7 here, get saved by Jesus. And Jews in Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, get saved by Jesus. That's the first part of chapter 8. That's the reason the gospel goes to Samaria. Jesus is gathering people from both kingdoms and uniting them under his lordship, fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 37. But something further was expected in the Old Testament with Israel's restoration. Something further was going to happen when that superior son of David would establish his throne. This king would also gather the outcasts. And he would also gather the foreigners into his people. And some of them, according to Isaiah 11.11, would be from the very place that this eunuch was from. A remnant would come from the land of Cush. The land of Cush is Samaria. Uh, I'm sorry, the land of Cush is Ethiopia. Not the Ethiopia we know, but more like our modern day Sudan. A remnant would come, Isaiah 11 says, from this area too. And that's where our story comes in with, with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's part of this larger story of God where he's restoring Israel and bringing in the outcasts. He's one of the outcasts that the Old Testament mentions explicitly. He's the epitome of outcasts. He's got three strikes against him. First of all, he's a foreigner. To be a foreigner in the Old Testament was to start life separated from God's covenants. Separated from God's revelation because he had chosen Israel. To be a foreigner was to be cut off. Separated from those promises to Israel. He's also a eunuch. He could have been born that way, but it's far more likely given his position that somebody made him unable to have children. Luke's intent is to emphasize that he's a eunuch. Notice this guy holds a fairly high office back home. He's a court official of Candace, verse 27 says, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. 
But throughout the rest of the passage, Luke simply refers to him as the eunuch. Four more times. Not the court official. Not the Ethiopian man. The eunuch. Why persist with like the most awkward title? You got three to choose from, Luke. Because Luke is making a huge point about God's salvation. God's salvation. We're going to see it from Isaiah in just a moment. But before we get there, consider life as a eunuch in the Old Testament. Under the Mosaic Covenant, marrying and having children was the way to maintain inheritance in the land and to perpetuate your name. It was worse than death to lose your name. It was a curse. You can see the implication for a eunuch who couldn't have any offspring. There were also laws that excluded eunuchs from God's assembly in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 8. And so not only can can they not perpetuate their name, but they were accustomed to being outcasts. Outside the, the assembly, no inheritance, they get no name, and they have no community. So he's a foreigner, strike one. He's a eunuch, strike two. He also doesn't understand the revelation of God's saving plan. That is strike three. Philip asks him in verse 30, Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, Well, how can I unless someone guides me? He's reading scripture. He's even reading a passage about the way God plans to save his people. But he doesn't understand it. He came to Jerusalem to to worship what he knew. But he's still lost. He doesn't know God because he doesn't understand the revelation of God's saving plan. We know people like this. People who know what's in the Bible, but who don't understand it truly. People who may even try religious things to fit in, but deep down they know nothing of God's saving work. People who are strangers to God's promises and without hope. People cut off from God because of their sin. People not welcomed into certain circles because of sins done to them. We used to be people like this. You see, we're Gentiles. We're just as much foreigners as this guy. We were once strangers to the covenants of promise. We were without God and without hope in the world. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. We were lost. We did not understand what God did for us. So what's the answer for this outcast? What's the answer for all outcasts, including ourselves? Well, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, Philip hops up in the chariot, verse 35 says, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I want to take a deeper look at the good news here, and let's do so from the passage that the eunuch asks Philip to explain. So go with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 613. Isaiah 53. That's what this eunuch is reading. When you see an Old Testament quotation, I mean, yeah, in your New Testament, turn back and read that Old Testament passage. Don't just read the the one or two lines it cites. Read the whole thing. 
Uh, I'm going to actually start reading in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, you've got to understand here, the only other place where this kind of language is used, high and lifted up, exalted, is applied to Yahweh in Isaiah or his temple mount. That's a big deal. Because here it's saying his servant is going to be exalted equal with Yahweh. So he's going to act wisely, should be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations... Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Let's stop there. We're introduced to a servant. And the basic idea is that God's servant will be exalted and he will uh, bless many nations. He, he will sprinkle them like the priest sprinkled the people clean. But there's a sense of astonishment. There is something puzzling going on. How can such magnificent blessing, how can the kinds of blessing that would shut the mouths of kings flow from such suffering? Who could really look on this weak and despicable and lowly and suffering servant and conclude, oh, that's definitely the arm of the Lord. I definitely see God's power in that. I definitely see that that's God's way of saving our nation. What person would draw that conclusion from a lowly, suffering servant? The only person who can draw that conclusion is the one who truly grasps and who truly embraces the rest of Isaiah 53. You see, the rest of Isaiah 53 solves the riddle. And it does so next by explaining that the servant would suffer as our substitute. The servant would suffer as our substitute. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So notice his sufferings are not for anything that he did wrong. His sufferings were actually the ones that we deserve for straying away from God. 
like wandering sheep. We all strayed from God and we became guilty of His punishment. That's the bad news. The bad news is that our sins have separated us from God. We've all gone astray. We've incurred this guilt. And that guilt must be punished. Sin must be punished because God is holy. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. It must be punished. So we we have this immense need. We all need forgiveness before the holy God. The good news is this. The Lord's solution to our need for forgiveness was to place the punishment that we deserve on the servant. So blessings flow from the servant because he suffers in our place. That's what's going on here. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you picture Philip explaining these things to the eunuch? They're bumping along in the chariot. Next, he's, he might say, check this out. The servant voluntarily pursues death and he gets cut off for us. The servant voluntarily pursues death and gets cut off for us. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here's verse 8, which we saw in Acts 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered it? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant isn't a helpless victim. In other words, he's a voluntary offering. His suffering and death are unjust because he's done nothing wrong. You can see at the end of verse 9. And yet he gives his life willingly for the sake of others. Consider also the language Isaiah uses in verse 8 to talk about his death, the kind of death it was. It says he, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Just like the foreigner was cut off from the assembly. Just like the eunuch was cut off from the assembly. Just like we were cut off. It says the servant was cut off. And the whole point is that we might enter in. He was cut off in death that we might enter life with God. He died not for sins that were his own. He died for our sins He endured the curse that was ours until that curse severed him. And finally, then we see that the servant produces many offspring by giving them his righteousness. Servant produces many offspring by giving them his righteousness. Let's read in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. This is remarkable. You see, the servant has no offspring when he dies. And that's the idea back in verse 8. From a human perspective, this servant was surely cursed since he had no generation to, to, to follow him. No, pos, no pos, uh, posterity. I said the right word, right? No children. You see, he died with nothing to follow him in the land. It was a cursed death. Where's his family's inheritance? It's no wonder the eunuch is so interested in this servant. This servant who seems to identify with his own predicament so specifically. But verse 10, this is the remarkable part, verse 10 says, He shall see his offspring. Who considered his generation? This guy's a cursed man. Oh, but he, who, he shall see his offspring. How can he see his offspring if he had no children when he was cut off? The point is that his redeeming work creates the offspring. Creates spiritual offspring. He sees his offspring in that God was going to raise this servant from the dead to secure all the offspring for whom he died as they trusted in his substitutionary death. That's huge for this foreigner. This unit, God's people aren't marked by a physical connection to Israel. They're marked by a spiritual union to the suffering servant. Give me some more of this suffering servant. True blessing isn't tied to the ability to maintain your own name in Israel. It's tied to knowing the servant and the forgiveness that he gives to you to enjoy God's name. Let me hear more of this servant. Anybody who trusts in the servant's substitutionary death not only gets reconciled with God, but reconciled into God's people. They get forgiveness. They get a righteousness that's not their own. That's what it said in verse 11. He will make many to be accounted righteous. They get incorporated into God's covenant people and all of its promises that go with it. Can you picture Philip witnessing to the eunuch? Anybody? from anywhere, no matter what they've done, no matter what their condition is because of what they did or what others did to them, no matter how far off of an outcast you may be or feel that you are, this servant died to make you righteous before God. 
and to bring you into the countless blessings of his covenant people. That's the good news according to Isaiah 53. But I want you to check this out because Isaiah goes on to get really specific about the results of the servant's death and resurrection. In fact, Isaiah 54 breaks out into song. You want to read it? Read it with me. Just drop your eyes to next to Isaiah 54. Sing! Right? Servant dies. He's cut off. Four other people's transgressions. Sing! O barren one who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and stretch, stretch out those stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. You get what he's saying? The offspring of the servant are going to come in. And they're not just from Israel. They're from all the nations, all the foreigners, all the outcasts out there as well. So you better get your tent pegs out. Because the tent you have right now, Israel, ain't big enough to hold them. There will be multitudes of people coming in. Make way for the nations, is what this song is saying. So then we move on to chapter 55 of Isaiah. And what is he doing? But inviting the nations. Look at verse 1 of chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, God's salvation is free. You don't work for it. It's free. You receive it. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food and incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. This is the invitation that goes out. Not just to Israel, but to all peoples. And you know who's going to respond? Turn with me to Isaiah 56. The two types of people that he promises to respond. The foreigner and the eunuch. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people... And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And if you look back at chapter 55, verse 13, that's another way of saying that God would share His state in glory with the eunuch. The foreigner, what does it go on to say for him? But that it says that God would would make them a, a joyful in his house of prayer. Full incorporation into the people of God and most importantly into fellowship with God. He's got access. He can come before God boldly and pray. 
That's what the foreigner and the eunuch get because of the servant. Can you imagine Philip teaching all this about the servant and then, and then turning to the eunuch and saying, this servant's name is Jesus Christ. And starting from this passage, it says that he told him the good news about Jesus. You see, Jesus becomes the key to understanding the revelation of God's plan. The promised servant did come and he did die and he did rise again to make people righteous when they placed their faith in his redeeming work. There's no more riddle to solve because God saved his people through Jesus. It was only Jesus who was exalted as equal with God. Only Jesus' glory can stop the mouths of kings. Only Jesus was himself the arm of the Lord revealed. Only Jesus was without sin. Only Jesus could bear the sins of the world. Only the infinite value of Jesus' death could remove the infinite guilt our sins incurred. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus prospers the will of the Lord. Only Jesus can count other people righteous when we place our faith in Him. The eunuch had three strikes against him. He's a foreigner, he's a eunuch, and no way to understand the revelation of God's saving plan. He was an outcast. He was lost. He could not know God by a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. What he needed to know was that there was one man that made the only pilgrimage that matters. Jesus Christ went to Calvary, and that is where He took away our sins and bore our punishment and forever reconciled His people to God. That's the only pilgrimage that matters. There's not a a thousand pilgrimages to Jerusalem or Mecca or whatever else you want to say will not save you. Only Christ. And the pilgrimage He made to the cross saves us. And the Holy Spirit leads Philip to share this good news about Jesus with the eunuch. And it's no wonder that after going on for a bit, if we go back to chapter 8 of Acts, that this eunuch says, Hey, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. If you want Christ, nothing. No sin, no ethnic barrier, no social barrier, no community, no self-righteous prig. Nothing stands in the way. In Christ, he is accepted before God and welcomed into the family. And so are you, if you trust in Jesus Christ. If you trust in Christ and in nothing else to save you, then you are 100% accepted before God. Because Jesus suffered, died, and rose again to make you righteous before God, and His righteousness is sufficient. So if you believe that message, make it public, like the eunuch did, through baptism. Philip baptizes the eunuch in verse 38. The eunuch gets incorporated into God's people. All this then leads to the eunuch rejoicing in verse 39. We're starting to see that this is a pattern in Acts. Salvation in Christ produces joy in God's people. Bitter Christian is an oxymoron. There's too much good news bound up with the gospel. 
Joy is the fruit of grace reaching down to save us, lost and depraved as we are, and bringing us into fellowship with God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Can we start viewing our evangelism efforts that way? And our ministry of the Word and care groups that way, and our Sunday gathered that way, and, and our concern for each other that way, that we are on a mission to spread joy. Joy to all peoples through the good news of Jesus Christ. God saved you to make you joyful in Christ and to make you an instrument in bringing His joy to others. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. You don't get better than that. You don't get better than knowing Jesus. So let's never get over Him. Let's pray for the joyful song of Isaiah 54 that goes out to the nations to become the song of white settlement and the song of Fort Worth. But it's got to become the song of our own hearts first. And the song of our families and marriages and this church first. Let's also leave reminded that Christ saves and He gathers the outcasts. We see this in Jesus' own ministry before the book of Acts where you know He goes to this Samaritan woman at the well and She'd been through five husbands and the one she was currently living with wasn't her husband. She's an outcast and she's looking for joy in all of the wrong places. Perhaps some of those husbands left her for others. She was lost. She's thirsty for life. She's, she's trying to get by with this religious facade before Jesus and He sees right through to her heart and He offers her living water in Himself. He gathers the outcast. He goes to the outcast. Jesus is doing the same through Philip now in Acts 8. And therefore, his church should be a home for the outcast. His church should be a people who pursue the outcast and finds them and shares the good news with them. What did Isaiah say? It says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. And then he emphasizes it. Everyone. So each individual has gone astray. There's nobody who gets out of this. Our sins have separated us from God. We're all, in that way, outcasts. But in Christ, He has gathered the outcasts. He has welcomed us in. In Christ, we've been accepted by God because of what Jesus did. We can't become a people who now look down on the outcasts or require from the outcasts we got to do this, this, and this before you can get in here. All they have to do is believe in Jesus. He is their entry into the presence of God and into the new community. Church isn't about going and staying where everybody is just like us. It's about Jesus gathering a diverse people who love one another for His sake, no matter what our background is or what sins we were saved out of. 
Finally, if God is fulfilling his promise to restore Israel, if he's right now gathering the foreigner and the outcast through the onward march of the gospel, then life is about conforming our lives to his mission and not the other way around. That's why this book exists and was written the way it is. It's not written so that we can kind of go through life and do what we want and squeeze Jesus in somewhere. It's written so that our lives then become conformed to what God is doing to save the world. You know, Philip had it going pretty good in Samaria. He had his own little evangelism crusade going on in Samaria. People were getting saved. As he says, there was much joy in that city. And Angel taps him on the back. He's like, hey, you've got to go down to this desert place. I don't know, just start walking on the road. God told me to tell you, you go down to this desert place. Why? Like, things are good here. He doesn't know why yet, but he goes. The Spirit then tells Philip, hey, go over there and join this chariot. Doesn't know why, doesn't know who he is. But he goes. Same thing happens after the... Ethiopian guy gets saved and baptized. The Spirit seizes him and takes Philip away to somewhere else. He goes. He preaches the gospel to other villages. This is because life is about God's mission to make Christ known. His food is to do the will of the Father, just like Jesus' was. In his book, uh, The Mission of God... Christopher Wright says this. He says, I, I, want, I may wonder, I may wonder what kind of mission God has for me when I should be asking what kind of me God wants for his mission. Life isn't so much about how God fits into the story of our individual lives, but about how our individual lives fit into the story of God's mission. We just read in Acts 8 about what he's doing right now to fulfill his age-old promises to gather the foreigner and the eunuch. So instead of how do I squeeze making disciples into my schedule, we ask how is my schedule going to serve making disciples? God is on a mission to rescue the outcasts. God is on a mission to gather the foreigner. So how will you conform your life to that mission this week? Pray and ask the Lord to guide you in that mission as he did for Philip in rescuing the eunuch. Let's spread joy in telling others the good news about Jesus. Let's begin doing that by singing the good news to each other. So we're going to sing now. So Gary and Seth and Adrian, you want to come up? Let's sing the good news to each other before we go out and hopefully hear others join us in this song.